It's Muppeturgy, and we're here to sing five-part harmony about the Arlo Guthrie episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Boo. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I think I'm glad you're here, but let's check in on that at the end. Anyway, I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Michal Richardson, and I'm glad you're here. Adam Grossworth. I'm glad we're here. I think our listeners will enjoy us. I hope. And Christy Bauer, and I abstain courteously. <laughs> <laughs> now we're off to a possibly decent start. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 8 of The Muppet Show, which was produced the week of June 19th, 1979, and aired in New York on October 29th, 1979. Happy Halloween. It was number 6 in the air order, in between Dudley Moore and Victor Borga. In the news, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the 1929 stock market crash, the New York Times has a front page story citing concerns over whether the New York Stock Exchange can modernize fast enough, uh, calling it a prehistoric organization. For many aspects of America, the electronic age is already well along and Wall Street's big board is an anachronism. Just, it's like it's, it's, I actually find it really interesting, like this, this sort of cuspy moment of what is tech and and where are computers and automation and you know all of that stuff clearly some angst in the zeitgeist there was some angst in the zeitgeist but also like things were happening really quickly and so which i think is why there was angst but you know it's just it was not that long ago it's interesting to me anyway billy martin has been ousted as manager of the yankees look sports two weeks in a row you're welcome the times calls him a tempestuous figure and says it was the second time in 15 months that martin had lost the job that's talent. Right. And as a lifelong New Yorker who knows nothing about sports, this is Billy Martin is one of those names that that seeped in. He he came and went a lot, as I recall. <laughs> People come and go so quickly here. And there was like there were ad campaigns about it. I don't I don't I don't know that baseball managers are consistently famous, but he definitely was. <laughs> South Korea's president of 39 years has been assassinated by the head of South Korea's equivalent of the CIA. China's Chairman Hua is on his Western tour that we mentioned in an earlier episode. 50 pieces were stolen from the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. There have been two arrests in the case, but nothing has been recovered. And I only found that noteworthy because I feel like this is like the fourth heist that we've talked about this season. Like, were heists just bigger in the 70s? Also in the zeitgeist. Yeah, right? The zeitgeist. Sorry, what? Ah! (laughs) I want to know when the movie The Sting was, whether it inspired some people. Oh, maybe. I, uh, we've talked about it, so it, it was around this time. I think. Hi, heists and hijackings. I, I just saw the original version of the taking of Poem 123 for the Ooh, first time. That's on my list. I gotta watch that. Yeah, you, you should, because it is 70s as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, people are, like, fighting, like, with Walter Matthau and Jerry Stiller, like, f- fighting for who has the most outrageous New Yorkness. It's It's beautiful. Uh, oh, now I'm but interested. Yeah, I do feel like it's kind of like, you know, like old Seinfeld episodes where you're like, a lot of these things have been completely sidetracked by smartphones yeah. and, and modern technology. Like it's a lot harder to, you know, steal a subway car than it was in the 70s. Um, when it was very easy to steal a subway car and just <laughs> airlift it to somewhere else. <laughs> anyway. Um, Speaking of New York City in the 70s, there is a movement by the city to get middle class kids to go to public school 
And as a middle class kid who went to private school, I just say fondly, remember when there was a middle class and it could afford to go to private school? <laughs> um, it is a very good thing for people to go to public school and support the system, even though I did not. President Carter has stepped up his drive for attacks on windfall profits of oil companies. He urged a meeting of governors and energy officials in the Northeast to help prevent what he said could become a trillion-dollar giveaway to the industry. My favorite kind of uh, Muppeturgy news story, the kind that is still happening and we never solved. Henry Kissinger and Tammy Wynette both have books out. That's also a problem that is still happening. <laughs> it conti- Wait, is, is Tammy Wynette a problem? I was thinking more about Henry Kissinger. A persisting problem. (laughs) There is an ad for Dr. Joyce Brothers' phone line. And for those of you who are younger than us, um, Dr. Joyce Brothers was everywhere for like the entirety of the 80s, as as I remember. Into the 90s. She was on an episode of The Nanny we watched this year. Yeah. I mean, she was was like a a pop psychologist. I mean, she was a, a real doctor as far as I know. And, you know, sort of like advice type stuff, talk show appearances, all of that. Like, she's who you called when you needed a psychologist on TV or on the radio. But this ad I found so weird. It seems to be, there's like a little rundown. Um, we'll put this on the show page. There was a little rundown, and it seemed like there was a different pre-recorded program every day. And it was a regular call. It wasn't a 900 number. So I'm, I'm like, did they bill you? Did they take your credit card before you could hear it? I'm just, I'm fascinated by the whole concept. Um, I did consider calling the number, but I was scared somebody would pick up. Anyway. You could also rent a copier from Sharp and get a free color TV, <laughs> which, okay. what? Sure. There's an ad for uh, Anchor Bank's Christmas or Hanukkah Club, um, and I appreciated the inclusion. Uh, this also sort of went a little ways to solving a cultural mystery, the, the first of two that will happen this week, because they, in the ad, spell Hanukkah the way I spell Hanukkah, and a different English spelling has like fully taken over like on like anything corporate, printed, cards, whatever. And I don't know why that happened, but at least this made me go, okay, that's why I spell it that way, because that's how we spelled it in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way Anchor Bank spelled it. They said the standard. Yes. Uh, and your Anchor Banker understands, which was their tagline. And the second I read that, I like heard the whole jingle in my head. They were very proud of that rhyme, and it was in all their ads. There's an article in the art section called It Takes Character to Be a Character Actor. It's very clear what that's about, but I will put a link in the show notes because it's great. Also an article, uh, Networks GERD for Sweep Ratings. Uh, We have talked about sweeps before. They're coming up in November. I just think GERD is a really bizarre word to use. They also call it a four-week carnival. In music, in the Cashbox Pop Charts, the number one song is, uh, again, or still, I don't remember, Rise by Herb Alpert. And the number one album is The Long Run by The Eagles. So the last time we talked about Rise, did we talk about the part of the phenomenon of it being on the charts had to do with it being used in a creepy way on general hospital. No, no. Oh. Cause I, I, it, it sparked a memory for me. And I was like, I was like, isn't there some sort of like weird general hospital connection to this? And yeah, it was used during the heyday of Luke and Laura, but like in the background of like, like an assault scene. Oh God. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, but somehow that propelled it <laughs> to the top of the charts. Anyway. Wow, wow, wow. That did not make it into the Hit Parade episode about wordless hits. Yeah. Over on our friend television, Channel 5 has a documentary called Angel Death about Angel Dust, uh, which is not that remarkable, but it is narrated by Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> what? 
and followed immediately by Merv Griffin with Buddy Hackett, the Charlie Daniels Band, and David Copperfield. Those are a lot of names that don't go together. Right? <laughs> well, they do because it's 1979, so they actually go together perfectly, including the Angel Dust. Like, it all makes total sense. <laughs> yep. Uh, CBS has uh, our regular lineup of The White Shadow, MASH, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Lou Grant. ABC had 240-Robert and Monday Night Football. NBC had Little House on the Prairie, The Halloween Dream. Albert has a dream in which he and Laura are prisoners of Indians who are planning an attack on a U.S. Army brigade. Yikes. I'm sure that was totally fine and not problematic in the least. Oh, my gosh. And then Freedom Road Part 1, a miniseries starring Muhammad Ali, Chris Christopherson, and Edward Herman. Now, those are three names that do not go together. <laughs> uh, this was a dramatization of Howard Fast's novel. At the close of the Civil War, an ex-Union Army officer returns to his family on the plantation where he was once a slave and pools his resources with a sharecropper to buy it. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Arlo Guthrie, singer, songwriter, Nepo baby. Arlo Davy Guthrie was born in Coney Island, Brooklyn in 1947 to parents who each have their own Wikipedia pages, folk singer Woody Guthrie and dancer Marjorie Mazia. His maternal grandmother also has an entry. She was Yiddish poet Eliza Greenblatt. Anyway, he grew up in this family. He was tutored for his bar mitzvah by Mayor Kahane, a rabbi who soon thereafter became a terrorist. Was it Arlo's fault? No, well, who knows? Uh, but he, I mean, he jokes that it was. Did he bore him to violence? <laughs> I do feel compelled to note here that Guthrie converted to Catholicism in 1977 and later settled into a more holistic interfaith approach to spirituality. Another failure of Mayor Kahana. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> in his teen years, Guthrie left Brooklyn for Western Massachusetts, where he would be famously arrested for dumping garbage on private property on Thanksgiving due to the public dump being closed for the holiday. This anecdote and its subsequent appearance in his criminal record when he faced the draft board formed the basis for Guthrie's most famous song, Alice's Restaurant. This song, which is 18 and a half minutes of mostly talking over guitar strumming, is very much not for David, but beloved by many, including Michal, so I'm going to let her talk about it here. Well, it all starts about two Thanksgivings ago. <laughs> Uh, it starts and then it goes and goes and goes for 18 and a half minutes. And it's for about just, two Thanksgivings. Yeah, for about two Thanksgivings. Uh, it's just Arlo strumming and talking and telling a long rambling story. And then it suddenly takes a turn to be a whole other story about the draft. And then it's Arlo telling you that if everybody getting drafted walked in, sang a bar of the song Alice's Restaurant and walked out, it could become a movement. And all you had to do to join the movement is sing along, which uh, just somehow ties it all together because this shouldn't work <laughs> it's 18 and a half minutes of telling a nonsensical story but he has this unassuming delivery combined with the sense of comic timing and the storytelling sensibility that just makes it all hang together it is okay if it's not for you i sent adam a timestamp for the clip that i wanted to play and adam replied did you intend to send me a clip with no lyrics and i was like oh no did i do it wrong and I typed out from memory exactly the little rant of his that I wanted. And Adam's like, yeah, he's just like, talking no, that's it. and not singing. <laughs> like, right. I guess it is fair to assume that this song would have some sung lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I have made it through 48 years of life, never hearing the song. The cor I've heard the chorus. The chorus is actually quite catchy. And I've heard of the song. And I think also I maybe thought that Arlo and Woody Guthrie were the same person until this week. But yeah, and so you sent me that and I was like, what am I? And I definitely just jumped right to the clip and didn't listen to the whole 18 minutes, uh, a choice I do not regret. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, I was very confused. Uh, should we play a clip for listeners who may also be confused? Uh, sure. Yeah, I have a lot of favorite parts, but this is one of my favorite parts. And he's just made the audience try to sing the chorus, even though they have not heard the chorus because it's just been Arlo talking. Wait, but we're not hear the chorus. Wait, this is like we are. This is like 17 minutes in. They haven't heard the chorus. Maybe he sings it at the beginning, but they, they are not confident. That's why he's reprimanding them. OK, great. That's horrible. <laughs> Want to end war and stuff, you gotta sing loud. You can put a lot. I've been singing the song now for 25 minutes. I can sing it for another 25 minutes. That's a threat. I'm not proud <laughs> or tired. So we'll wait till it comes around again. And this time with four part harmony and feeling. We're just waiting for it to come around is what we're doing. Oh, no, I forgot. We're not going to hear the chorus in that clip. <laughs> well, you could sing <laughs> but the chorus. you can hear the melody then. and the guitar. Oh, that was it. <laughs> but it's, it is a, a Thanksgiving icon. For a lot of us, it is an absolutely unshakable Thanksgiving icon and must be listened to every Thanksgiving. I first heard it on the classic rock station that I listened to as a teenager. They play it every Thanksgiving at noon. Still do. It is probably the foremost Thanksgiving tradition that I have, except for the tradition where after dinner, my family gathers around and watches the video of my baby cousin's bris. What? By baby, I mean he's a very grown, very large man now. But we've been watching his bris for many years. Why? I, okay. <laughs> Don't ask too many questions, David. <laughs> anyway. I just want to point out that Michal is the kind of person who goes to organized folk dance meetups multiple times a week yeah so and, folks sings and yeah right so it does not surprise me at all that this is a tradition that lives on in your life what i don't understand is how widespread the love of alice's restaurant may or may not be christy can you weigh in on that i don't think a lot of families watch a breast video I, <laughs> no but a lot of radio stations play it every year i i was about to say it's not the classic rock station in louisville i, I believe it's like the soft rock station and they play it at 11 rather than noon um so i i don't know what that's about but but yeah there's at least one radio station in louisville that plays it every thanksgiving and i i have on multiple occasions listened to it so yeah it it, it has a it has a life and like we're making world. fun but this is a very famous song and and you know like it's based on a real place i'm pretty sure people you know sort of pilgrimage to that place like it's it's not for me it's not for david but like it this is what he is most known for is the song and and, and the subsequent not, movie, which I have now watched. And I kind of regret watching that movie. So Alice's Restaurant earned him airplay on counterculture and college radio stations, a spot at the Newport Folk Festival and his first recording contract. To this day, as we mentioned, there are radio stations that have a tradition of playing the song its entirety on Thanksgiving Day. And as Michal mentioned in 1969, Arthur Penn made a feature film based on the song in which Arlo played himself. He continued to act off and on for the next couple of decades, uh, but not quite enough to really consider him an actor by trade. Around this time, he married Jackie Hyde, with whom he would have four children, all of whom would go on to have musical careers of their own, becoming fourth-generation Nepo babies. They stayed together until Hyde's death in 2012. In 1972, Guthrie had a more conventional hit with his cover of City of New Orleans, which is a song I did not recognize by name, but did recognize when I heard it, hit it, Adam. Good morning, America, how are you? 
I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Yeah, I definitely thought that song was called Good Morning America or whatever, uh, or Native Son. But I like that one. Yeah. And apparently it made Arlo Guthrie a one-hit wonder officially, uh, according to Billboard, because Alice's Restaurant was too long to qualify for the Hot 100. So this was his only hit, if you ask the Hot 100. Good for him. Well, and that, that was in commercials. I mean, that money must have made him. That well, song must have made him a ton of money. Although we, it's a cover, so I don't know that it was always his version that, like... Oh, gotcha. But it's his version that became the definitive one. Right, like certainly that's that is the one that I know. Right, but he didn't get all those writer credits for right selling out. Anyway, he had a robust touring career that continued up through March 2020 when COVID caused the cancellation of upcoming shows. He released one final song recorded during lockdown in July of 2020, but then in October formally announced his retirement. This is probably a good segue to talk about the politics of Arlo Guthrie, which can mostly be summed up as "What the fuck." So look, he played Woodstock, <laughs> and he wrote a very important song opposing the draft, but he later claimed it was more about being anti-stupid than being anti-war. <laughs> and as he aged, he drifted so far rightward that he registered Republican in 2008 and supported Ron Paul. After the rise of Donald Trump, he walked back his commitment to Republicanism into a more I-don't-care-for-either-party stance. Uh, but he did support the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, and he's since taken the stance of being largely apolitical, which is kind of privilege you can have when you're a famous Nepo baby on both sides. You can just be anti-war and also be anti-politics, I suppose. Not really. Suppose. No, you can't. You can be anti both parties and be just anti-war. But right. I mean, and not to not to def- not to defend Ron Paul or our <laughs> Guthrie, but I think Ron Paul uh, would describe himself as a libertarian who is a Republican by convenience. And that that tracks, I think, with everything that you just said and, and Arlo Guthrie's whole, like, let me go live in the woods, but wearing a very expensive shirt vibe. Yeah, fair. <laughs> anyway, despite all that, he has done a lot of good in the world, which includes founding the Guthrie Center in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, in the former church where Alice of Alice's Restaurant lived. It's an interfaith community center involved in all sorts of charitable causes. He is still around. Although he retired from the performing life, he did remarry in 2021. Uh, he has an active website. If you want to keep up with what he's doing now, even though he's not performing, he still does talks and some of them are online and he's very proud of his children and their careers. And they all have sections on the website as does the Guthrie Center. And you can find a link in our show notes. So uh, I think Adam and I have sort of exhausted our Arlo Guthrie memories, but Christy and Michal, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I have a couple of things. For one thing... I have a deep appreciation for the wider Guthrie family, uh, both in the work that they do preserving folk music, like the Woody Guthrie Center does amazing work and has tremendous archives, but also, so Woody Guthrie and several of his other children um, died of Huntington's disease, uh, which is a thing that uh, my late stepdad died of and marjorie arlo's mom basically founded the support groups for huntington's disease and families of of people afflicted by it in america like they're responsible for creating that entire support system which now you know extends to you know multiple nonprofits and 
they do tremendous work and and we we were helped directly you know by their outreach and research and so uh that's a pretty cool thing but yeah Alice's restaurant holds a warm spot in my heart I I particularly remember as a kid uh there was a period where my dad wanted to introduce me to all of the goofiest songs that he learned as a kid so there were uh, a couple of Arlo Guthrie songs, you know, it was Alice's Restaurant. And there's a, a, another song on the Alice's Restaurant album called, I think it's called the Motorcycle Song. But it's like, I don't want to pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Like, it's the sort of thing that like when you're nine, you're like, this is brilliant. <laughs> you know, and so it was like that stuff and Alan Sherman and, you know, like everything that sort of feels like it's like, you know, Dr. Demento adjacent. <laughs> I kind of like got a a quick education in as a kid. So yeah, you know, I all, all of this holds a warm spot in my heart. Can't add anything to that. Just with all the talk of Nepo babies uh, and knowing a lot of theater people listen to us, uh, I just want to point out the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis is named for Tyrone Guthrie, no relation. <laughs> the, the only, uh, the other famous Guthrie. Why don't you get so Christy, you like Arlo Guthrie, but what did you think of his episode of The Muppet Show? What a snooze. <laughs> Like, it felt like an episode of The Muppet Show played at, like, I don't know, like, 0.75 speed. Like, it just dragged and was sludgy and just was missing something. And and part of it, I think, was Arlo didn't bring a whole lot of energy to this. I mean, he's charming enough, but, like, it just, I don't know. I would, I think, rank this one somewhere in the bottom of the middling to best of the worst part of the the chart. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't care for it too much. David, I bet you liked it better. No, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. I think best of the worst is a good, uh, a good place to think about it because it's not, it's not one that made me angry in the way that like rich little made me angry, but it, it just doesn't have much to recommend it. Uh, I kept saying this week that it reminds me of like the first draft of what will become Muppet Family Christmas with like none of the things that make Muppet Family Christmas great, but it's got a similar set. It's got some similar bits. It's got a turkey. It's got a sleigh ride. It's uh, and yet it doesn't have Christmas. (laughs) Like (laughs) like, it just it needs a little Christmas (laughs) or something. Muppet family. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Even like yeah. made up a, a family instead of bringing the Muppets together as a family. So like, yeah, Kermit's like, we've got the family here. There's grandma. And like, there's some Muppet lady we've never seen before. Like who the fuck is grandma? Anyway, <laughs> not for David's. Huh? Oh, how about you? Yeah. Um, I'm with you on the, you know, best of the worst or bottom of the middle. Um, I, give them a lot of credit for kind of taking a swing at a concept episode because they clearly put in some effort here into like trying to build some kind of like down home with the family in some kind of farmhouse vibe. Like there were sets we've never seen before with floors. Um, There were like entirely new puppets we'd never seen before that we didn't know who grandma was. So we have no reason to be emotionally invested in like, now we're going to sit down and have a family dinner with grandma and a baby. But like, it's a cool puppet we've never seen before and a bunch of other new puppets. So they, they've they been putting in effort 
Um, but, and yet it, it never quite arrives. It all just kind of falls flat. And some of it has to do with Arlo Guthrie, but it is not entirely Arlo Guthrie's fault. He's, he does sing some snoozers, but there's nothing going on around him to lift anything else up, except for one moment. There is one lovable moment in this episode, and then everything else, there's no reason to watch it. It is a classic uh, guest star does stuff while Muppets happen to be there episode. Mm-hmm. Like, he just does not seem to care. And they didn't write for that, you know, for, for engagement either. It's interesting that you mentioned the effort they put in, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, but my main takeaway was that it was super lazy. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, you're so right that they made all these puppets and there's costumes that we'll talk about later and and all that. But like, I didn't really notice any of that until you pointed it out because I was so bored. And I like they have this concept and then do nothing with it. There's no real through line. Like the Swedish chef keeps coming back, but like in the most boring way possible. Um, there's actually only two sets, which makes sense with the concept, but that we're like on the homestead. But I, I was just really aware of like, we're outside the farm, we're inside the farm. Everything takes place on these two sets. It just felt like a weird sort of cheapening, which I don't think it was. They just spent their money elsewhere and I didn't care. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had a good episode with a chef runner in it. True. I'll I'll say more about that later. But But like there was some potential in the chef runner that was not realized. Yeah. So you know what this episode could have been, arguably should have been, if they wanted for Arlo Guthrie to do his thing, and if they wanted to have a concept episode, what if instead of me having to watch a 111-minute movie of Alice's Restaurant, where the events of the song actually only take up like the last act of the movie and everything else before that is just like random people trying to hook up with Arlo Guthrie and him being like, no, I'm going to be virtuous. I don't know. What if instead of all that, (laughs) I'd gotten to watch a 27-minute Muppet rendition of Alice's Restaurant? And that had been the concept. And it was the story of Arlo Guthrie as performed by Muppets. That I I would be here for that. Would have been a lot more interesting. Yeah. They could have still built cool new sets and it would have been wackadoo. (laughs) Uh, just to wrap up my my overall thoughts, I uh I've I've sort of fallen off on my rankings this season. Uh, but this is dead last for me. Oh, this wow. was below ritual for me. I, I just, wow. I hated this. I and, mean, Adam also defends the Peter Ustinov episode, so you know. I do. Yeah. But like uh, having to watch this a second time for the podcast was like torture. But like ahead of actively racist episodes, this like you'd prefer to watch Spike Milligan again? I mean, Spike Milligan made me angry in a different way. Spike Milligan at least engages you. This one, it, like, it's so easy yeah. to forget there's something playing on the TV. Like, yeah. it's all, it, Spike, Spike Milligan is almost like... He provokes like, you you're so shocked you're by how. Yeah. yeah, like, you're shocked by it. And also, like, there are jokes in it. Um, there are, like... There. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you. But, like, when Spike Milligan's not on stage, there are jokes. And, and I just... Oh, wow. Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, we will all have more to say. Oh, Arthur, Arthur Godfrey, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Godfrey. Arthur Godfrey? You better check with your boss. I'm Arlo, Arlo Guthrie. Oh, yeah, Arlo Guthrie. Of course. I'm sorry, Arlo. Gee, I wish Kermit would learn how to type. His handwriting's terrible. Why is that a joke? Like, not the not the Arthur 
the Arthur Godfrey part. The I mean, the Arthur Godfrey part isn't really a joke, and Kermit's handwriting is terrible. Isn't really a joke either. Yeah, it's mostly like I. I wish he'd learned to type his handwriting as terrible is is delivered as if it were a joke. Yeah, and I don't get it. Yeah, it's not. It's not much. Yeah, uh, Arthur Godfrey. I now know, uh, was an American radio and television broadcaster and entertainer who was sometimes introduced by his nickname, The Old Redhead. At the peak of his success in the early to mid-50s, Godfrey was heard on radio and seen on television up to six days a week, sometimes for as many as nine separate broadcasts for CBS. So a contemporary audience would have at least gotten that reference. Was was Scooter not present at all during the week when they presumably had rehearsals, had production meetings, discussed who was coming on the show? Like that, That joke does not withstand even like the little bit of scrutiny they've been building the sets while the number is going on you think they had rehearsals but yes i scooter up to know who the guest star is also if this is the first time that you are encountering the guest star that's what arlo guthrie sounds like he is from brooklyn and this is how he talks it is a mystery to all of us even those of us who are fans yeah brooklyn and then moved to massachusetts like there's no Yep, and he's going to sing some cowboy songs. Don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we're introduced to him. Arlo looks sleepy. Uh, he does not look that excited to be here. He might have just been high this whole episode. That's yeah, it would explain some possible. things, but not everything. Uh, meanwhile, a shark swims into Statler and Waldorf's box. What's this fish doing in our box? The same as us, suffering. Oh. <laughs> Dang. Doesn't make any sense either. The shark yeah. looks fine. <laughs> I mean, it's out of water. But it definitely looks like a shark. So, like, I I thought that when they said this fish, that, like, there was going to be some sort of, like, that's not a fish. I don't know. <laughs> it's actively I mean, drowning, so it might be suffering, even though it has a built-in smile. I guess that's true. A lot of half-jokes, non-jokes, disguised as jokes. Yeah. Anyway, Gonzo uh, blows his trumpet, but is then stampeded by a herd of cows. Have you heard of cows? Now Gonzo has. He's heard of a lot of cows. Also, it kept occurring to me because there will be more cows in this episode. There are so many missed opportunities for cow puns, but they were busy building a vibe and building sets and not writing jokes. They did use all the cow puns already. In previous episodes. So why should that stop them from using them again? Well, fair. It would have behooved them to recycle some. If they can do the, the entertainer three times in one season. <laughs> That's your answer to one everything. <laughs> hey, David, how are you today? The Muppet Show did the entertainer three times in one episode. <laughs> they can recycle some cow puns. I hear, he says, oh, is it okay if I put on a playlist? I'm like, sure, whatever. And suddenly I hear the entertainer coming out of the kitchen. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Not again. Your your personal Groundhog Day. It may have been the Muppet Review playlist for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Was it then a thousand different renditions of The Entertainer? One after I mean, the other. Right? I learned it by watching you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go backstage. The Muppet Show backstage. Or back farmhouse or whatever this is. But here we are with the family, which we've mostly never seen before. We're at the top of the show. Kermit announces that we're going to lay back, relax, and spend a quiet family evening together, um, which we later learn will include a family dinner. Backstage, we meet a bird named Winnie. There is no context given. She's just a very large bird. 
She kind of resembles uh, Miss Finch from Follow That Bird or that disguise that Robin Hood wears to the archery contest in the 1973 animated Disney movie Robin Hood, uh, featuring the vocal talents of Muppet Show guest stars Roger Miller and Peter Ustinov. I was getting major Skeksis vibes from from Winnie. Yeah. In addition to to the references you you just made. She's another brand new puppet that they put a lot of effort into. She is a a very involved puppet. Shall, Shall we hear Winnie? Hey, Winnie, uh, what's the chef doing up there with all those dishes? Oh, well, when Chef and I heard you were having a big family gathering on the show, we decided you should have a proper meal. Well, that's true. So we got out the crockery, and now Chef can start cooking. Yeah, but, uh, oh, well, Chef, Chef, uh, we're having it catered. There went the crockery. That voice reminds me of, like, any time... The Monty Python guys would do drag. Yeah. Yep. Like, oh, he's a very naughty I'm boy. Tar- I'm tired of all this sex on the television. I keep falling off. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is kind of a, the perfect example of of when I call this episode lazy. Like, yeah, as you as you say, they they made a very nice puppet for this, and then she has the one scene, does kind of nothing. And the chef is going to get a runner in which she does not appear. And I'm just like, what? Why? Why? Yeah, why like, does she exist? Any other character could have said, the chef is excited to cook a meal. Here he is with all the crockery that he's about to break. Yeah, like, I feel like they were trying to make Winnie happen, and I respect that. But like, the, but even in this episode, they didn't. I mean, she's there to replace Gladys. You know, would you have rather had Gladys back? That's so funny, because for the last few minutes, I've been thinking about how the... Muppet Show version of Alice's Restaurant could have been Gladys's Restaurant. (laughs) (gasps) Oh. You know, I'd have watched the hell out of that. Same. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the wiki now. She she will appear in the background of another episode, but that's it. Yeah, this is it. Like they did not they did not try very hard. She has a handful of lines never to be seen again, except for walk-ons and other stuff. But oh she yeah, she is in Muppet Muppet Treasure Island, apparently. Apparently. But also just a just a background. Yep. Huh. Anyway, we don't see Winnie again, ever. But we do see the chef's kitchen. Also, I guess part of this house that they're in because it's. The, I don't think it's his regular kitchen. There's like meat drying in the background, even though he keeps failing to slaughter anything. He, there is some meat already in this kitchen. But we learn that the for this big dinner, the chef is cooking the roasty turkey, and he attempts to skewer the turkey who leaps out of the way of the skewer grabs it in its mouth and then knocks the chef out with it which is nicely done so i had a lot of thoughts watching this about the chef and his relationship to animals that he wants to cook and and i i trying to figure out why is it that he doesn't seem to understand that you need to kill the animal before you start preparing it and I think it's because Muppets live in sort of a waking death or uh, not quite life uh, where where there, there is no life and there is no death for Muppets. And so therefore, uh, it, it's not necessary. Like if, you're, if your vegetables can sing and dance and you wouldn't necessarily need to kill a vegetable before you start preparing it, like... Well, arguably, is, in this episode, the vegetables are rebelling because they don't want to be soup either. 
Well, right, but like I, that's his point, right? So, like, like why why would you treat a turkey any differently than a cucumber? So that that is yeah, my I, like metaphysics of Muppet food. I noted that too, and I decided uh, not to mention it because it was weird. But uh, you went to a much deeper place than I did, uh, which you know, which is the good, good kind of weird. But I mean, I think you know, it, it, it to be like sort of more more real about it. Uh, not that you weren't real about it, but you know what I mean, like. I think the chef is bad at like, the, like I think that's part of the well, joke, yeah. the quote unquote joke that he's just bad at everything. And so he doesn't know. I mean, it, successfully putting that skewer where he was trying to put that skewer would kill the turkey, even a Muppet turkey, because it would it would go right to the hand of the puppeteer. <laughs> but I mean, so I feel like you could put a skewer through Gonzo's asshole and out his mouth and he would continue. Gonzo would be into that. And then go dancing yeah. with a cheese and sure, be sure, fine the next sure. episode. <laughs> But you know, if you yes, there, there's a mechanism. Maybe a bad example. Band artists out there. Oh my god, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Anyway, I did look up spit roasted turkey, and it is a thing, uh, and it doesn't take any longer than cooking it in, in an oven. But they do recommend a turkey no bigger than twelve pounds, and I believe if this turkey were real, it would be much, much heavier than twelve pounds. So he is doing everything wrong. I mean, he's yeah, he's not a good chef. <laughs> Metaphysics aside, I don't think that he knows how cooking works. Anyway, he fails at cooking a turkey, so he later attempts to roast a piggy. Not the piggy, not Miss Piggy, but he the pig punches him out. He tries to roast Biff. Uh, he gets uh, stampeded by more cows. His dinner keeps kicking the crap out of him. Uh, there is also one cow who, like, they stampede him in two directions. They run across the screen. The chef gets trampled, and then they run back across, and then there's one cow who, like, takes a little extra care to stamp on him a little extra and then looks at the camera in satisfaction. Like he's a lantern fly. Just got to make sure that's dead. It was good. Uh, I really appreciated the butch pig who is naked, except for a studded collar, a tough pig, if you will. Uh But he also really looks like he was in the middle of changing after the macho man number, (laughs) which I don't think was what they were going for, but, but that's yeah. Yeah, It's entirely possible that, Literally, that is just one of the puppets they grabbed from there and didn't finish taking that costume off him because they thought it would be funny. Yeah, and I think it's me- it's meant to make him look tough, but it it really sort of has the opposite effect. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned the the chef assures the other animals that he's about to prepare a veggie stew, veggie wedgies, and then the the veggie wedgies turn on him and attack. Uh, so he's he's failed at pretty much everything. The episode concludes with all the Muppets and and grandma whom we've never seen before and everybody else at the dinner table thank you Kermit. you know i've had a wonderful time but can we uh carve the turkey now yeah I'm sure. <laughs> Let's do that. Well, maybe no turkey but uh oh. what are we gonna have well, well i'm certain that the swedish chef has cooked up something for us right chef <laughs> what? it's vitamin pills when that cloche came off, I 100% thought that they were pickles and condiments until they said the words vitamin pills. Just because they're they're jars and you can't tell what's in the jars. Yeah, but they're also like the they're the wrong size and shape to be pill bottles. Well, they look like the kind of bottles that like hard drugs would come in, not like vitamins. <laughs> like, they look yeah, like or like something out of a pharmacy. Old school apothecary. Like a hospital pharmacy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like a big glass bottle. But yeah, that's fair to think that they're ketchup or whatever. It, it, a little dark given Arlo's drug use. Like I don't know. It it felt like a maybe a mean practical joke to put a lot of drugs in front of this like well known drug user. 
especially because I think this was right around the time when he was trying to kick the habit. Because I know uh, later in life he he revealed that when he became a father, which I think was around this time, uh, was when he decided to stop using drugs so that he could actually be present for his children. It is cute that he like then pours out the pills and like starts like digging into them with a knife and fork. Like it's it's hard to see because they start rolling the credits, but it's cute. Also cute. They cut to this last scene and Kermit says, we have to thank our very special guest star, Arlo Guthrie. And they, they cut over to Arlo and he has his arm around Piggy. And then like, he looks very surprised when he's like, suddenly looks back at the camera and takes his arm away from Piggy and then gives her this <laughs> little sideways knowing glance. That's I, I mean, that was cute. yeah, you can, you can argue about the, whether that's in good taste, but it, it is very cute. And Piggy looks incredible. He does. She's on screen for about five seconds and they are spectacular. I don't know what they did to her hair, but I'm into it. One uh, un- unrelated to any of this, there's a, another nifty prop in the episode that they they went to a lot of effort to build for one barely a joke, but they build a, a flamingo guitar that looks like a tiny pink ukulele that also is a flamingo. If you could help me uh, tune my guitar. Oh, sure. Come in, Gonzo. <sighs> you know, I, I love guitars. <sighs> Yeah, well, this one's a beauty. It's a custom job I had shipped in from Miami. Wow. A real flamingo guitar. Yeah. I would just like to mention my favorite fun fact that I learned this week, which is that the collective noun for flamingos is a flamboyance. Yes. It's beautiful. I learned that the collective noun for frogs is an army. Hmm. Those don't really go together. (laughs) Usually. Let's segue into our music segment with the prelude to this episode's musical highlight, uh, just so you have something to look forward to. There is a highlight in this episode. We'll get to it in the mm. music. Anyway, come at my, my poetry is just as good as my comedy. It's that bad, huh? Kermit, I memorized a whole poem. Okay, fine. Okay, you you can do your poetry, but just make it snappy. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Okay, Kermit, I'm ready for my tango number. Uh, Gonzo, not on this show. Maybe next week. Fozzie whining that he memorized a whole poem is the only thing that made me laugh. It's in this beautiful. I would argue that this scene is the highlight, not the song that follows it. Agreed. Yeah, the song is just fine. <laughs> Fair enough. This is the highlight of the episode, followed by the the song. But the the song is a lot of fun. But yeah, Fozzie, presumably down on his knees, like he gets lower than Kermit and begs him and like sticks out his jaw in a little pouty way. So I memorized a whole poem. It's really cute. I thought Kermit not saying anything to Gonzo when he charges onto stage at the end of the scene is like a real dick move. Like he knows Fozzie is going out to do this poetry thing that even though Kermit thinks it's going to be a disaster, like he did just give Fozzie the, I guess, permission to do it. And then to like Gonzo just go screw it up. Like it's bad friend, bad boss. Does he track that Gonzo has, because he just tells Gonzo, no, don't do it. He he sees Gonzo Gonzo walk past him and go to the stage. He doesn't, Say anything like, hey, Gonzo, no, don't do that. Stop. Maybe he's also bored and just wants something, anything to happen. <laughs> Which it then does. And we'll get to it. Yeah, so we've got a, a lot of music in this episode. 
But first, let's go shopping. I was like, oh, I hate it so much. Why did Adam pick like the part of the song that sounds fun? And then he starts with the lyrics that are the worst lyrics in the song. I was like, oh, that's why. (laughs) I mean, Deedly Dumb is the chorus. Yeah, but like this is towards the end when there's like more Muppets singing and it has like a little more verve to it. Uh, yeah. But then yes. he starts. But I picked the part that made me furious, yeah. as opposed to the part that just confused me. Oh yeah. So uh, this cute little ditty is called "Grocery Blues." Uh, it's an Arlo Guthrie original. It's from an album called "Amigo" from 1976 uh, that peaked at number 133 on the Billboard 200 Albums chart. And inexplicably, I found this review on allmusic.com that gave the album Amigo four and a half out of five stars, and it described it as the pinnacle of Arlo Guthrie's career. And this song specifically was described as a typical, if humorous and effective Guthrie novelty song. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, as far as I could tell, and I will confess I did not listen that closely, the song is mostly about the economy, right? Like it's a, he's going to the grocery store and everything is really expensive. And he's also just sort of having a bad time at the grocery store in general, which doesn't really, they, they, they sort of try to work it into this, this larger plot by having the Swedish chef walk on with a shopping cart and walk off and then come back on with a full shopping cart, which sort of tracks the lyrics, but not really. And then out of nowhere, this last verse it was like, well, I'm not going back in there. If a woman doesn't do it for me, I'm never, never going to get groceries again. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> you were doing fine. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it, but you were doing fine. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's funny is for a split second when this started, I really thought that it was going to be Tom Paxton's bottle of wine, which is a banger. <laughs> but it it falls in this special category of songs that are extremely Muppety, but also incredibly inappropriate for Muppets because it's all about being drunk then again sexism it's like drinking sexism i you know pick your poison i also have a lot of questions about arlo's like military flap shirt that he wears through most of the episode like it's very javert core i like that that was very stylish (laughs) that's that's what i was referencing earlier when i said he wants to go live in the woods but in a very expensive shirt i feel i don't know why i just have a feeling that shirt probably costs too much yeah all the buttons. A lot of buttons. But yeah, that was a thing for a minute. And then it sort of, I don't want to say it came back. I definitely had a friend in high school who had a shirt like that. And we made fun of him. But, you know, they were they were around. Uh, David mentioned earlier, this is, you know, the number where, you know, Kermit's like, let's go down to the homestead and meet the family. And we've never seen the family before. Um, but Fozzie is there. He has legs, which I know disturbs some people. Um, and he is very manspready. Um, I actually thought at first... I. What turned out to be his feet, I thought were his knees. He has his feet propped up on something, and I was confused and didn't like it. Eh. And I'm not really anti Muppet legs in general, but it's like, dude. I mean, you can see the floor in this shot. They have to set that up somehow. I guess they had feet for him. It doesn't look quite right, but I don't think it looks bad. I wonder why they didn't just let Arlo do a solo. They were afraid if they left him alone, he'd make a run for it. (laughs) 
like two halves of two different jokes that have been like super glued together. Yeah, they've done so low you can't hear them already. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's class up the joint. Oh, I was so excited when this started, not because I particularly cared for this version of it within the episode, but I was just excited to get to talk about this song. One, because I, I love this song, but also because the story behind this song is wild. So this, this is a song called Elegance, uh, which is from Hello, Dolly. Funnily enough, although it's commonly attributed to, to Jerry Herman, who wrote the score for Hello, Dolly, you know, seems like a, a safe assumption. It was not written by Jerry Herman. It was actually written by Bob Merrill for the 1957 musical New Girl in Town. And... It was actually cut from that show. Uh, Bob Merrill, most famously being the lyricist of Funny Girl. And I want to shout out a book called Show Tunes by Stephen Suskin and also archive.org for letting me borrow it so that I could get the intel behind why there, there actually are multiple not Jerry Herman songs hidden, at least in the the history of uh, Hello, Dolly. I believe this is the only one that is still in it. Um, there, there are some questions I think about one or two others as well, but yeah, <laughs> I'd explain why I like Hello Dolly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the show had multiple tryouts, and uh, during its tryout in Detroit, Gower Champion, who was the director of the show, called in some of the writers of other shows that David Merrick, the producer of Hello Dolly, was working on. He called in Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, uh, the writers of Bye Bye Birdie, and called in Bob Merrill. And because this was contemporaneous with Funny Girl as well. And was like, how do we fix this? Can you guys fix this? And so they basically like ghost wrote songs or in Bob Merrill's case was like, here, you can have this song that we cut from this other show. And in the case of Strauss and Adams, they wrote a song called Before the Parade Passes By that then later got replaced by a Jerry Herman song with the same title. And initially they didn't get any credit. And Jerry Herman also didn't know that any of this was happening. So this was just like a big controversial thing. And there was this whole feud between Gower Champion and Michael Stewart, the book writer, and Strauss and Adams. And they threatened to sue to get credit. And eventually what happened is on that song, Jerry Herman and the two of them get credit. Nowadays, with Elegance, Bob Merrill gets sole credit on it. And I have some questions because there are, are lyrics in it that are specifically referencing characters in the show. And so part of me wonders if he's responsible for that or if Jerry Herman finessed them later. I had heard that Jerry Herman like did his pass on it after. Yeah. Because also, like um, when you say they get their credit, like they get a a piece of the financial pie, but like their their names are not like on the record or on the in the playbook right. or anything. Right. So I also want to mention another 
delightful fun fact that I I learned in this book show tunes about New Girl in Town, the show that the song originally came from. Uh, so it was a musical version of Eugene O'Neill's Hooker with a Heart of Gold drama Anna Christie. It's funny, a friend of mine and I were recently talking about storytelling tropes via text, and she meant to say hooker with a heart of gold, and she texted hooker with a heart of golf. So now that's just what I'm going to think of <laughs> anytime I see that in print. That uh, trope, yeah. That would yeah, actually be uh, not a bad beginning for uh, like a new romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> like pretty woman, but instead of taking her shopping, she's his caddy or. Yeah. But anyway, uh, MGM originally developed New Girl in Town uh, as a vehicle for Doris Day called A Saint She Ain't. Yes. Why did they change it? And then they abandoned it wisely. But um, but the title did eventually get used for a totally unrelated musical that opened in the West End in 1999, which is based on a unrelated. play. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, let's let's talk about the actual performance. So this is a group of cows introduced as Aunt Melba's Guernsey Cotillion. And I was delighted by uh, something that Muppet Wiki pointed out, which is uh, six cows start out performing, but as they like shift inside for the finale, there are only five of them. So it wasn't room for all six. Who got left yeah, behind? Better that luck next like space, time. Uh, space problem. Cow number six. That was like Aww. a butcher problem. There are some really nice light cues in this. <laughs> I like the idea of the Muppets doing songs from Hello, Dolly. That, that's about yes. the best I can say for this. Sure. Also, Kermit introduces it sitting on a fence post, which is one of those nice Muppet illusions. I'm not sure if it's the placement of the backdrop or a mirror, but or a hollow fence it post. works. Well, yeah, but Jim would still have to be behind it. Well, or under it. You could see the sock under Kermit, but Maybe I'm wrong. I do like that they have a costume change or they start out outside with no costumes and then they come inside with the top hats. And what what do you call those bibs? Dickies. Dickies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I believe they're dickies. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just happy that there was some sort of visual change because the first part of it looks really kind of chaotic and muddy. Mm -hmm. And also, I like that they sort of gender fuck the cows because cows in general are are, are lady animals, <laughs> and they are voiced as lady animals. And yes, but they but then they dress them sort of as as uh, masculine, bullish types. Yeah, those, it's very chorus line. Those dickies could be a showgirl thing, uh, perhaps. My favorite thing about this song is. Uh, we were studying Hello Dolly in musical theater writing school, and I was sitting next to my friend Ryan, who also loves it as much as I do. And I looked over, and we were both doing the same dance and singing at the same time. <laughs> and I, I t- fully turned and looked at him, and I said, "Well, at, at least we'll die alone together." <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Heifers are pretty good hoofers. <laughs> yeah, just hope it doesn't curdle the milk. <laughs> All right. So in our, our UK spot, we have a horse of a different color. A horse with a name, not a horse with no name. It's a horse. Let's just hear it. A horse. I had a horse and his name was Bill. When he ran, he couldn't stand still. He ran away. When? One day. Oh! And also... I'll run with him. 
Hey, sing one. He ran so fast he couldn't stop. He ran into a barber shop until exhaustion eyes. How? With his eye teeth. Oh, yeah. In the barber's left shoulder. You know, this was the first time that I, I ever had this moment of, oh, I get why Adam hates this so much. <laughs> I just, it was, it was just, it was just a horse too far. Um, but let's talk about the horse. This is a song called A Horse Named Bill. It's a traditional question mark folk song that I had a difficult time researching. So I'm actually going to default to our folk song expert, our resident I, I am on this one. not an expert, but I, I did know which nerdy message board to look it up on. <laughs> Looked at the old Mudcat Cafe. So there are many versions and different verses of this. So it is a traditional question mark song, but it's supposedly it was, quote, collected, which is uh, what it's called when you write down a folk song uh, by the poet Carl Sandburg. But my understanding is that the the nonsense song style is reminiscent of his other work like rutabaga stories and oh sure yeah that guy the famous rutabaga stories <laughs> oh, i couldn't tell whether you'd heard of it or not no i was joking okay so he hints that he might have learned it from uh, the novelist sinclair lewis but that might be some kind of inside joke that is improbable so it it is thought that this is written by carl sandberg and also it is set to the tune of the song dixie for whatever that's worth the one notable thing I did find uh, is that uh, this is not the first Muppet iteration of this. It was used in a Sam and Friends bit where Kermit lip synced to a Bob Gibson recording of it. I thought this was terrible. I thought it had nothing to recommend it. In fact, uh, I had such a hard time even forcing myself to watch it because like, my body just sort of rejected it. But after the second <laughs> time I watched this episode, I realized I, I couldn't even remember anything about this song and I had to go look it up on YouTube and watch it again just so that I would know what we're talking about when we recorded tonight. Oh, I, I had the same experience. I, I had the, the list of songs and I was like, wait, there was a UK spot in this? That title, like, what is that? And then I went to YouTube and I was like, Oh, God, yeah, there was. And I hated it so much that my brain was just like, nope, let it go. I don't know whether it sounded familiar to me because because it was to the tune of Dixie or because it was a thing that I've like heard at folk song sings. And I, I, I think that I have heard versions of this sung at, at folk song shares. But yeah, this execution was not doing it any favors. Just sloppy. Well, that was different. I should say so. So many of these songs are long and boring. Yes, they finally managed one short and boring. <laughs> oh, Not short enough. Yeah. Anyway, get ready for more of the same. Or should, should I say get ready? I'm just noticing now I somehow managed to cut a 38 second clip of this. And I apologize. You know. Wyoming will be your new home. Sounds like a nice song. <laughs> Tell you know the truth of it. <laughs> you know these songs were sung by lion cowboys. <laughs> I mean, what's that mean? Whoopie tie yo, get along, little doggies. <laughs> it's your misfortune, ain't none of my own. That means a cowboy, he's got a gun. <laughs> 
Is that what it means? I don't think that's what it means. I just thought this was Arlo being Arlo. Arlo got a Arlo. Yeah. Yeah. They gave him a moment, a moment to pontificate and not just sing, which at least wakes things up. Yeah, but it only confused me and angered me more. <laughs> also, I know you mentioned it already, but that accent, like it when he's singing, fine, you're singing a like deeply country song, but like then he keeps talking in it and it just it's so bad and weird. <laughs> anyway. Adam is fully melting. I memorized a whole poem. <laughs> Okay, so this is Get Along Little Dogies, which is a traditional cowboy ballad. It's cataloged in the Rude Folk Song Index as number 827. And of interest to Muppeturgy bingo players, it was number 46 on the Western Writers of America Top 100 Western Songs list. I was confused when you said the Rude Folk Songs list. I was like, wait, is this song rude? <laughs> is I, mean, it, I didn't like it, I didn't find song. it unpleasant that way. <laughs> Is it rude like that Rolling Stone list? <laughs> Maybe it's Roud. Yeah, it's R-O-U-D yeah. for listeners who can't see our outline. It's a Rue with an X. It's a it's just a stew of folk songs. Yeah, and uh, unsurprisingly, it's been recorded by Bing Crosby. It's been recorded by the Sons of the Pioneers. And there's Bingo! A, there's a 1937 Gene Autry movie uh, called Get Along Little Dogies. And he's singing it to a bunch of cows. Yeah. Which you may have heard of. All right, let's let's get along out of here to the highlight of the episode. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. You what? Gonzo! A dark Gonzo, what are you? Thanks. What are you doing, Gonzo? That's not Thanks. I give up. Fast and race. It's called Shay Gonzo's Hideaway. That was the the one true laugh of this episode for me was the the fact that the, the Robert Frost scanned to Hernando's hideaway. Like just <laughs> that, that is old received wisdom in my circles. Delightful. Yeah, this is my second my second mystery solved because you know the Robert Frost poem comes up a fair amount. It was as we're recording this in yesterday's Learned League. <laughs> I never had to memorize it in high school or anything, but like whenever I hear anything from that poem, I hear it to the tune of Fernando's Hideaway, and I didn't know why. And now I know why, and I'm delighted. Yeah. Excellent. Fozzie's playing castanets. There are so many of, of these things, like, you know, like you can sing all of Emily Dickinson's poems to the Yellow Rose of Texas. My favorite is that Amazing Grace and the Gilligan's Island theme are interchangeable. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Anyway. (laughs) So yeah, Hernando's Hideaway is from The Pajama Game, which we've talked about before. Written by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross from 1954. Talked about these guys. Uh, Jerry Ross tragically died at age 29 after two hit Broadway shows. And several versions of this song have charted, with the most successful being a version by band leader Archie Blyer that went to number two on the pre-Hot 100 Billboard chart in 1954. And to bring things weirdly full circle, Archie Blyer was, for several years, Arthur Godfrey's music director. <laughs> hey! <laughs> this is one of those songs that 
it's sometimes hard to believe that it was written for a musical because it feels like it is just the quintessential idea of what like an American tango is supposed to sound like. And yeah. like, I, I don't know when it shows up in the pajama game, it, it feels like it should have been a pre-existing thing that they're referencing, but no, they just did a really fucking good job writing a song that does exactly what it's supposed to do. Well, a pajama game has multiple numbers that don't, really have anything to do with anything yeah steam or, heat does that like, same thing yeah right. and like really, stylistically really too job. or like why is that in this show but you know then like fossey did his thing and and they're both they're both great songs and there's another isn't there a third one isn't there, is there a picnic or is it am i thinking of a once a year show? day yeah which is a little bit more plot driven but still feels like it's from a different show entirely but yeah i mean they're all they're all great yeah i love this song and i love this rendition of it and i love that fossey is playing castanets little tiny castanets and little hats are very good too also the chickens are wearing black wigs for a latin number those are veils i think that those are flamenco costumes hmm was that supposed to be poetry yes the bear has gone from bad to first (laughs) at least that's a joke sure well it's a pun the highest form of jokes Uh, sure all right so let's sail away Exploring all the little byways, sighting all the distant stars, and I was not far from Yeah, so this is a song called Sailing Down This Golden River, uh, written by Pete Seeger, in, according to Muppet Wiki, uh, in 1962. But uh, Secondhand Songs says that it uh, was first recorded and released in 1971, so not sure uh, what accounts for that discrepancy. Um, but Pete Seeger, in addition to being a noted friend of the Guthries, also noted friend of the Muppets, uh, who appeared many times on Sesame Street. And I... I did a, a lot of reading. I fell, I fell down a, a really fun rabbit hole last night reading about the history of Pete Seeger on Sesame Street and about how there were a lot of conservative parents early on in, in his appearances who were like, he's a known communist, blah, 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 blah. And Sesame Workshop basically was just like, fuck off into the sun. He's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was, If there was any highlight from the movie Alice's Restaurant, it was a moment where... Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie are just kind of jamming together on a couple songs. It's really sweet. And Arlo looks so happy to be jamming with Pete Seeger. I mean, wouldn't you be? Yeah, dude. Uh, I definitely would be. The song seems to have an unstable title because sometimes it's sailing down this Golden River. Sometimes it's sailing down the Golden River. And sometimes it's sailing down my Golden River. I am not invested in that at all. I just find it very strange. I, I noted that as well. It's the, the nature of folk music. Mm. It's very mutable. That's the folk process. <laughs> this started out so promising. Like, it's catchy. I love the instrumentation. And then, like, I, I, cl- I clipped the most interesting part, which is at the end, that little instrumental bridge, I guess. But, like, so much of it is just two lines of melody repeated over and over and over again. And there is no chorus and there is no bridge and, until, like, it's almost over. And I, it just like like everything in this episode, I just like glazed over, and and found it so tedious. 
And then I was like trying to find the spot to clip where it might be more interesting. And and like, that was the best I could do. Yeah. The, the, the instrumentation it's yet another thing it's like uh, <laughs> that led me down a oh this would be a folk person who would have been more interesting than, than arlo guthrie is in this episode but the instrumentation reminded me a lot of um a couple of phil oaks songs mm-hmm. i mean phil oaks would also be like like tom paxton like a, a weird fit for the muppets but um but would be kind of amazing would be oh it would be incredible so this song had been recently recorded by Arlo on uh, his 79 album, uh, Outlasting the Blues, which got four out of five stars on all music. So they really like him there, apparently. They should just rename it to Arlo Music. Because, <laughs> yeah, they're just like, Arlo! Anyway. So we got an email months and months ago from a listener uh, named Michael Sander. Michael, I hope you're still listening. It's You sent this email so long ago. Uh, but we're just getting here now. Michael said that he used to go watch a children's performer named David Grover, no relation to the Muppet as far as I know, uh, play in the uh, gazebo in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, just down the road from the Real Alice's restaurant. And uh, David Grover died in a car accident, much too young. But that was when listener Michael learned from his obituary that he had been in Arlo Guthrie's longtime band and had a Muppet likeness. So Muppet Wiki uh, has an entry for these uh, band members, some of the new Muppets that Michal mentioned earlier. Um, they are called the Shenandoah Muppets after oh. Arlo's band, Shenandoah. I roll. You are from Massachusetts, sir. Um, and uh, But the, the, it's just buried in the list of characters on the episode page, so I never would have found it if not for Michael. Thank you, Michael. Um, but yeah, the band here are, are modeled after Arlo's real-life band, and uh, I assume that means they, were, they also went to London and played or they were using their tracks or something, but yeah, they're cute. And for anyone who's a little creepy, confused, Arlo Guthrie's band Shenandoah is not the same band Shenandoah. That is like the alt country band Shenandoah, two different bands, both called Shenandoah. I did learn this while researching for this episode. Neither is the John Cullum musical Shenandoah. <laughs> there we are. Unless you Shannon do not know the difference. (laughs) Anyway, at the end of this, uh, Arlo scratches Ralph's head and it's very cute. And it's like he is remembered after 25 minutes that there are Muppets there and he should interact with them. Yeah. Yeah, they don't give him much to do. I really wish they had just put him behind an instrument for this because I did not know Ralph doesn't look comfortable. No, that shirt we mentioned earlier is is front and center in this. (laughs) you You can't cover that with a guitar. Unlike that shirt, Scooter is in an immensely appealing outfit. He's in this little overalls and yellow t-shirt. I don't know if he's dressed as a kindergartner, but this is freaking adorable. It's real cute. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. It's a little bit of show business this week. We have a Muppet News flash, uh, which that grandma puppet and the baby are watching on tv it also occurred to me when you see them watching the newsman the baby is like suspended from the grandma facing out and this would make a really cool costume if you cared to build a baby puppet that was suspended from you that you could puppeteer so now i'm thinking about it anyway (laughs) this week on muppet news flash we have an agricultural update Elsewhere on the agricultural news front, the recent bumper crop has been causing problems for farmers. 
Widespread dumping of produce has resulted from this bumper crop. Bumper crop. I, I can't believe that that's the clip you chose and not the totally bizarre opening to this sketch. Well, we were you not on our Slack? We talked about this, but I, we were going to be decided to talk about it. But I know, but it's just uh, it's the part of the episode I'm most fascinated by, if not most amused yeah. by. So let's talk about it. So, so it's a farm report, and I, I, I know that this is a real thing, but I grew up in Manhattan, so I, I have never actually heard one. And he's listing the gestation periods of various animals. Is that news? Like, does that change if you're a farmer? Don't you know that already? Why is it in the farm report? And why are these other puppets watching? But everything about it was so weird. So first of all, he says it's the livestock report, like report of gestation of livestock, and then he ends with elephants. Are elephants livestock? Well, I mean, that's that's a joke, not a good joke, but it's a joke. Yes, I believe. I think I think it's meant to be, as is their very long gestation period. But which is true, by the way. Yeah, he just says. Yeah, I assumed. But also, I I meant to check whether these I are real gestation they are. periods. But uh, also, like, when he's doing this, you know, grandma's watching with the baby, and he says, you know, and now into the gestation periods of livestock, and the baby goes, gestation, which is my second favorite yeah. moment of the episode. <laughs> yeah, same. I was just <laughs> baffled. <laughs> so strange. Yeah. Also, it, I actually meant to mention this up top. Um, I... I couldn't get a clean clip of the, the Statler and Waldorf intro joke because it like their audio actually cuts off before it's over and it goes right to Kermit as if the episode was short or they were editing in a hurry. And then this feels so much like filler that he's reading the gestation periods of livestock. I was like, what is going on? They're not updated. Just here are the gestation periods. Here they are. Here's the news. Here's the weather. Here are the gestation periods. I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, bumper crop, bumpers fall down. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that was why we decided to clip it, because I thought it was a funny thing to to visualize when you hear him say bumper crop, and you can picture the bumpers, bumpers falling on his that's head. That's not clear. They're bumpers. Like, you know. Like, yeah, like not fenders. rubber baby buggy bumpers. Classic newsman, yeah. that guy. The, the ba- <laughs> that guy, the baby thinks it's very funny. Anyway, we also have an at the dance sketch which this week is at the square dance. The fiddler is also a caller. He's calling the dance. This seems impossible, but I texted a friend who's a fiddler. He assures me that he can call a dance while fiddling, which I would like to see evidence of, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) I have an acquaintance who plays the electric violin and sings and also has one of those like looping machines that she controls with her feet. So she like, loops herself both singing and playing while performing so this is possible and we'll put a clip in the show notes because it's more entertaining than anything that is in this episode yeah i mean my friend tells me that he can fiddle and call a dance and dance at the same time which is that's too many things on a roof and it's yeah that's just uh impossible or certainly improbable also impossible the caller in this at the square dance says ella man with a do-si-do those are two conflicting things that you cannot do at the same time. We should say that the the music for this is our favorite at the dance theme, but reimagined with a country western flavor, which I like. I like when they do that. This was 
to me one of the laziest parts of the episode because I I got excited when it started. I was like, oh, we're gonna yeah, get like country jokes and like cows dancing and things. And then like for it to just be like bad square dance calling. I don't know. It was a lot of missed. It it is impossible square Here's dance calling. Thing. On the one hand, I feel like it's lazy jokes to be like, ha ha ha, it's square dance, and they have to do whatever you say. And so like stick your finger in your nose. Uh, on the other hand, I think we probably, we, our listener community probably all know at this point that Square Dance has sort of like a terrible racist history in this country. So like, go ahead and make fun of Square Dancing. I say this is the grandson of some committed Square Dancers. Uh, my grandparents like <laughs> had like the big Square Dance outfits and like it was their main social activity yes. uh, and uh, fuck Square Dancing. Did they have closets full of sparkly boots? They sure did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this caller is telling the dancers to stick their fingers in their ears. And he says the, the ladies should make a fist and punch the gents in the jaw and they do it again. And then the gents get even and kick the ladies in the shins. And then they just do what he says. They're pretty enthusiastic about it, about punching each other. It's It gets weird. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> Uh, I didn't think to look this up before, so I'll say it now, that the word bumper in the context of bump, bumper crop uh, comes from a usage that means something unusually large. They don't explain that usage or where that comes from, but there you go. What about in rubber baby buggy bumpers? I believe those are the type of bumpers that are on a car, only smaller. For rubber baby buggies. Well, as they say in France, adios. Uh, that's Spanish. I know, I don't speak French. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for our discussion of the Beverly Sills episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. The, the only thing I wrote down while watching this was the word cows. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you need at the end of the day yep <laughs>